What's up, everybody? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to the latest episode of the Hashishin. As always, thank you for tuning in. Today, we have episode 17 with Jennifer Hendricks, aka Jen Doe420. So, stick around for her very cool and inspirational story. I want to give a special shout out to Jennifer for always being supportive. From the first day we opened up our Patreon, she was one of the first people to sign up, and she's still with us. So, thank you, Jennifer, for allowing us to create this content. And to the rest of our Patreon community, I want to thank each and every one of you, of course, for allowing us to continue the project. To see all the support that's poured in over the last month has really been incredible. So a shout out to all of you. Thank you. A big shout out to our sponsors, Low Temp Plates and Rosin Evolution. If you want to check out Low Temp Plates, their website is lowtemp, that's L-O-W-T-E-M-P-plates.com. And if you do go on their site, you'll see nothing but positive reviews, both on their equipment and on their customer service. So if you want to make rosin, you can literally hit these guys' site. You can grab one of their all-in-one V2 presses, pre-presses, parchment, and hit the ground running. They have everything you need while providing you a great price. Their equipment is sturdy, high-end equipment, and low-temp plates always backs up all their equipment with their lifetime warranty and remember now that their 420 sale has ended you can still save five percent off your entire order using our savings code the letters t-h-i standing for the hashish in with no spaces and then you go and buy the best bags in the game with our other sponsor rosin evolution who you can follow on instagram at rosin evolution 100 that's the number one zero zero they got all your rosin needs taken care of from rosin bags to their full mesh wash bags which are incredibly reasonably priced and of course use our savings code the letters thi to save five percent off your entire order because who doesn't like to save money and in this case you support us and you support a company that supports us Thank you to all the people who have left written reviews. We're at 99. If we can get past 100 today, that would be awesome. Please check out our Patreon at patreon.com backslash the hashish in. That's the hashish I-N-N. We're creating extra interviews for people that are supporting us. Shout out to the Masonic Smoker who ran a special and had a bunch of people sign up for our Patreon. Thank you for your support, bro. In honor of having a female on the podcast, our web series will also feature a woman, Sophie from French Laundry, based out of Northern California. So again, if you want to check out our exclusive interviews, check out our Patreon. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoy the episode. I am thrilled to be here with Jennifer, a.k.a. Jendo420 also known as the U.S. Hash Queen. Jen, thanks so much for giving me time to sit down. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So we were able to link up here in Miami, and we are both here for Dabadoo. I'm curious what you thought of the event. It was absolutely amazing. It's very rare that you can get that many skilled hash artists in the same categories together. People came from all over the world. So there was an amazing lineup. Honestly, in my history of judging events, I think that that was one of the toughest competitions because everybody just came through on point. So, yeah, no, it was great. 
Cool. And, you know, the other thing is obviously Mila and we were talking a little earlier about how really I haven't had a chance to have a standalone female on the show in part because it's kind of uncommon in this particular sector. And so I'm curious, you know, how you feel about being at an event that's in a way kind of honoring Mila and, and her trajectory in kind of the cannabis world, you know? Yeah, Mila is actually the only reason that I even came down here. Any chance that I get to spend with Mila, I'll jump on it. Mila's been a really big part of my life and my advancement and my, you know, passion of knowing that there's another woman out there that has got kids. And she just, she she started all this for us because of all of her experiences. And it's, nobody will ever have an opportunity again to do what Mila was able to do. You know, so she really started this out for us. And yeah, any chance I can have to hang out with Mila and hear her stories and just be in her vibe, you know, it's really nice to feel like I have somebody that understands kind of like what I've had to go through as not just a woman, but as a mother. So Mila's got four kids and she drug them all over to, you know, follow her passions. And like I admire that because that's what I've had to do. Cool. Yeah, that's a very cool connection to have. I'm curious, what's the first time you met Mila? So the first time I met Mila was the very first Dabadoo in Denver. Okay. And we flew out there, and I had actually brought a bunch of hash. It was like my second run that I'd ever done in my life. I'd just barely gotten into the water hash, and I was part of the Miss High Times group. So my plan was... I'm going to take out all this hash and I'm going to get all the group high and just have a good time and, you know, kind of start to get a little bit of feedback on my product and stuff. And so I get to Denver and the second I land, I'm told that Mila needs some more entries and they knew that I'd brought some hash with me. So I was like, yeah, okay. I had just enough to be able to give her all of the hash that I intended on smoking with the girls. Uh And then I had just my little personal stash of different strain, totally looked different. And that was like my show off, you know. Right. So, yeah. So I entered all this hash into the Davidu, not thinking anything. I'd never heard of Mila. So at this point, I'm like, who is this? You right. know? So people are telling me who she is. And I was like, okay. All right. That's awesome. I Like, I would be honored to put this in there. And I ended up taking third place. Wow. By default. <laughs> Nobody wants to say that, but it's a fact. Like, the dab is brand new. She only had three solventless entries. And whereas, you know, it was good, it was blonde, but that's when I kind of really was able to learn what melt was. When I learned to make hash, I hadn't seen anybody else's stuff. So literally all the information that I had was not because I had seen full melt and was like, oh my God, I have to make that. I had no idea. You know, so to be able to get people's feedback on that was great. But like, it wouldn't have won third place if there was more stuff. It was maybe like a solid four on the melt if, you know. Yeah, but, but still back in 2013. It was blonde. Right. Like that's, yeah, that was an important thing. Like it was light. It was almost white. Yeah, which is like a common look now, yeah. you know, but yeah. not so much then. Yeah, but very, very little melt. So, yeah, so that was when I originally met Mila. And then following that, because I'd taken my good hash and kind of like gotten a lot of feedback, 
I was like, okay, like, I think I might want to try and enter high times, you know? Yeah. Just thinking it would be fun. Like, that was, like, my way to honor high times and, you know, my childhood of growing up and that being the only source of information we had for weed. Right. So it was kind of like, yeah, I'm going to do this as, like, my show of appreciation to this being such a big part of my life, you know? Yeah. Was that high times Denver or? Nope, that was Santa Rosa Cup. In okay. 2014. Okay. And did you run the same strain that you had run for the 2013 Dabadoo? Not for the Dabadoo, no. But the one that I had to show off, that's one that I originally planned on. Because that one was a solid six star and I didn't know what that meant. Right. So when this one's staying all stable and white and whatever, and then I got this one that's turning into these little see-through glass <laughs> balls. Uh-huh. I was like, what's going on here? Uh, so, yeah. So after showing that to a couple people and like the reactions that I got from them was like, did you make this? And I was like, yeah. Like, but I've never seen another hash. So like, what do you think? And right. they were like, okay, all right. So that kind of inspired me to really like try and put this thing together. And like, I don't know, I hadn't been making hash long. So it wasn't like I thought I was going to go in there and kill it, right. you know? I really what strain just, was that? I'm sorry to... Uh, so that one was called Cottonmouth Kush. Okay. I actually got that from OG Genetics, my buddy Johnny. And he had originally hit me up because I was doing photographs with, like, girls that were dabbing. And uh-huh. then once I realized that was just a horrible job <laughs> because I would get them too high and then my models would just fall out on me. <laughs> so I decided to just start photographing weed and occasionally having girls in there. But he had hit me up about giving me some genetics. Uh, He was like, how do I get some of my plants in there? I was like, shit, send me some seeds. I'll take pictures of the whole thing all the way up. And these were like the first seeds that I like had obtained for myself. So I met him up in, I met his partner up in Seattle at the one of the, I think it was the Seattle Cup and picked up some seed packs from him and told him, you know, I'm just going to use these and I'll take pictures. Like, that's the way that it started for that. And then when I picked one seed, this was the coolest thing about this, is the person I was with was kind of selling somebody else's seeds on the side. Okay. There was one that kept coming back and they were like, this won't pop. So I was like, okay, let me do a test run. So I popped an entire pack of this pack that they said was not good. And I picked one seed out of like the six different seed packs that he'd given me. I was like, okay, which one of you is going to be my girl, you know? (laughs) So I picked one fucking seed. I gave her a little pep talk. I was like, you're going to be amazing. Like, can you picture me? I'm just like, oh, seriously. I was like, you're going to be amazing. You're going to be a girl. But I just popped her as like a... like a side-by-side to okay. make sure that if these ones didn't pop and this one did, clearly that's a bad batch of seeds. Right. So I popped it and I babied it and it turned out to be a girl and I was so excited and just raised this whole plant. And when I extracted it, that's the one that I was showing off at the Dabadoo and it was just beautiful. So I decided that's the strain that I wanted to enter. But then <laughs> I ended up entering a blend And I love blends, but I didn't intentionally do it at first. I think when we were in Denver, Nicotee had been watching my feed and kind of like poking his head and like, who's this chick, you know? So when I met him and I showed him my hash and whatnot, he was like, you made this? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, do you plan on continuing? I was like, fuck yeah. (laughs) And he was like, cool. Like, can I gift you a set of bags and you can try them out? And I was like, absolutely. You know, up until that point, like, 
I'd only done a couple washes. I spent like $20 on some Amazon bag pack, you know. Just like a generic bag. Yeah, just like the cheapest thing right. I could do. You know, knockoff fucking washer that was just one of the Chinese ones that's actually supposed to be for clothes because we didn't put the <laughs> sticker on it yet, saying right. it wasn't. Right. Yeah, so he gave me this set of bags, and I was really excited. So I start prepping my entry, and I had two big, gorgeous cottonmouth kush plants that I had grown, and they were just prime. And I'd been watching all of the YouTube videos. I'd been looking through anything that I could to find out about hash and whatnot. So I was able to figure out, like, okay, so if I pull it at different times, uh-huh. it's going to give me a different result. Right. So I was able to watch every single little trichome. I waited until, like, the exact day that I was like, okay, I think this is good. At that time, like, we didn't really have that much information to know. And where it was a brand new strain, like, I didn't know how long it was supposed to go. Right. And so I ended up pulling it, and I washed the first plant. You need, like, I think it was, like, 20 grams or something to enter high times. Okay. So I needed both plants to reach... Yeah, the, the fucking 20. goal. Yeah. So I am just so excited and so nervous because still to this day, like putting weed in water that I just spent so long growing is just so conflicting to me, you know? So I just get scared, but I'm like nervous. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. Like, so I fucking pull out my bags. I'm so fucking in a rush to like make sure everything's perfect. And I run it and I sieve it and As I'm putting a tray in, I looked at it and I was like, what the fuck did I just do? Rookie mistake. I got a brand new set of bags, not thinking, oh, hey, they've never been used. They're clean. Didn't even consider like, hey, I need to wash these before I use them because like the factory cutting the fabrics. So my first plant of Cottonmouth Kush that was supposed to be this entry was fucking just contaminated with all these little bag strings. You could just see everything. You could see them. There was just like black fucking threads in all of them. (laughs) And I just wanted to cry. Like I was like, oh, fuck. So I washed the bags and I'm like, God damn it. I don't think I'm going to be able to have enough from this entry. It's my other favorite strain that I had that like when I first moved to Washington, I went in search of Uh was uh, it was a strawberry. They were calling it a strawberry cough at the time, but it was not a strawberry cough. Me and Cuban actually figured out semi-recently that it's actually the strawberry kush. And we had the same cut because we got it up in Washington back in the day. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, so that was the one strain that I'd searched out. So that was the second, like, plant in my garden that really, like, meant something to me. And so uh, I had one of those done. I was like, okay, girl, let's see what you do. So I washed the second cottonmouth kush. It was like, turned out phenomenal. No contaminants, you know. And then I was like, I don't have enough. So I had to pull down. I pulled down like one of my strawberries. Okay. And I think there was one other one that I pulled down. And I was like, if I can get the color to match, I'm going to just throw these together. Right. You know. And so the strawberry just had such an amazing strawberry flavor. And the cottonmouth kush is like this sweet lime, like almost like too sweet Kool-Aid. You know, zero bitter in it whatsoever. So I put these two together and was like... Made a good mix. Yeah, yeah, because the strawberry came through on the front end, then it dropped in with the lime sweet on the back. Like There was, like, no funk to it. No gas, no, like... like It was just uniquely, like, sweet as shit. 
So that's kind of how my blend came together because I made the hugest mistake ever. <laughs> well, that's good for somebody who's yeah. like never made this to know. You got to wash your bags yeah. when you get them. So. Yep. Number one, wash your bags. But that's also where I learned that I love blends. Like, I think that really contributed to that entry standing out particularly because you get so many different profiles in one thing and it's just hitting all your receptors. So the high is totally different than these single strains where you're just going to get whatever effect that strain gives you. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So yeah, it's nice. You know, there's some blends that work better than others, mm-hmm. but when you get a good one, like you said, it's just like it hits different notes mm-hmm. in like a lot of different senses and they can be a lot of fun, you know, so. Yeah. Some of my favorite runs that I've done have just been like an entire garden mix of all of my little buds off of all my different strains. But the only reason that that works well is because I was growing like primarily to try and find the resin to extract. Right. So I didn't have a garden full of stuff that I used for flowers and then tried to wash that together. All of the strains that I was currently running that I wanted to use were were melty and had the same approximate size heads like I just got very fortunate to get a really nice lineup yeah I would wash those together and like I used to gauge if my hash was done and if I did it properly if I could make my ex-boyfriend vomit (laughs) like and he was a serious dabber so he smoked a ton you know but he'd never really experienced full melt like they did candy and they did BHO but they'd never done full melt, which is actually why I started doing it. Okay. They were doing BHO extraction. And I started with that. Like I started open blasting and learning all that back when like Farmer John 420 was doing demonstrations at these little markets up in Washington, had his little pancake griddle and was blasting with his tubes, like making sure nobody's smoking. Like So yeah, like I started in those days, but they... The company I was with, my ex-boyfriend kind of wanted that to be like their thing, you know, and there's not a lot of girls in this. And part of it is because they don't necessarily have or want the knowledge. But part of it's also because it's like inviting a girl into the fucking boys clubhouse and they're like, no girls allowed, you know. So I just didn't feel like they really wanted me there participating. And so I was like, okay, well, if you guys are going to do this, then I just read that I can wash weed with water right. and make my own. That's, so they were That's like, kind of what pushed you, yeah. you know, into it. And funny how you said earlier how, like, you had read about it, but actually putting the weed into the water was still scary, mm-hmm. you know. And there was a whole bunch of things that I found interesting. One of them was that, you know, what was it, the candy mouth? Uh, cotton mouth the cush. The cotton mouth kush. You, at that time, you said you weren't, like, super familiar with, I guess, strings that we're putting out, you know, full melt. And then this just happened to work with that one seed that you picked out of that pack. So at that time, did you basically immediately realize that like genetics played a large part in being able to make full melt? Absolutely. Yeah, that's huge, huge. That first run that, like I said, I had that, those two comparisons of this one that's like really white and pretty, but is it supposed to look like that? Or is it supposed to be this one that's, clear and like that's when I learned genetics because I was like well I did the process the exact same but 
since I wasn't so experienced yet because I'd only done a couple of runs, that really was the only variable. I didn't have a grower as the variable because I was the grower. Right. You know, I didn't have any other assistance with it. So like the only variable that I could even point to was, well, this is about the strain. So that's when I started looking for different breeders that would, uh, you know, primarily breed for the resin right. rather than the bulk and stuff. Growing up in Utah was really interesting because, like, I didn't know a lot about strains. I didn't know a lot about genetics, like, not the specifics. I knew my price point on different kinds of weed. You know, I knew my lows, my mids, my highs, my super highs. So I knew the basics of these are the types of plants that allow me to get all these different kinds. But as far as, like, knowing the names or being able to like say how a certain strain is going to affect you, or even being able to smell something, be like, this is OG, or this is cheesy, or in Utah, like packs come in and the growers aren't going to give their original name to that strain. So we could get a bunch of OGs in, they're like, it's Afghani. And it's like, it doesn't matter. It's whatever they told me it was, was what it was. You get what you get. So it kind of gave me a disadvantage in that fact because to me, OG smells like any weed you've ever smelled because at one point somebody's given me something, told me it was OG, and it was anything. Right. Like anything. When cookies came out, actually, I had a bunch of people that were like, cookies, cookies, cookies. And I was like, do you guys even know what cookies looks like, tastes like, smells like? Do you even know? And they all said they did. But there was one point, I don't want to admit this, it was super fucking mean, but I was just annoyed with the cookies fad to the point where I finally had enough of my customers and my patients ask me for cookies Okay. that I picked my midpoint. It looked decent. It was like some really good fucking light dip, uh-huh. you know, but I picked my midpoint and charged them full fucking price and was like, cookies, here's your cookies. And they were so fucking excited. But the fact is, and it's sad, nobody knows the fucking difference. That's where I learned about hype. Yeah. You know? It's funny how, like, a name or a trend or something will go, you know? Mm -hmm. It's not even necessarily about the quality, I think, in part, that's built up by, like, people's idea of something. Yeah, well, and when I could show them two examples, I can show you my work, which I'm now going to tell you is cookies, and I'm going to put the the top shelf right next to it and tell you, you can choose. This is cookies. I want that. And I'm like, but did you look at them? You know? And they're like, I want cookies. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, it's funny thing. yeah. Growing up, not aware of strains and just knowing weed names from reading it in magazines. Yeah. We had no education whatsoever. So being opened up to all of the varieties and then all of the details of it and just how expansive it is and being able to relate it to, you know, different parts of the whole thing, like, was was really a neat move for me from Utah to Washington. Yeah, that sounds cool. So in Utah, that's where you grew up, you said? Yep. What was, I guess, your first experience with cannabis? Like, what was your connection to it? Oh, goodness. Well, my parents, when I was a kid... They used to smoke. They would hide it from me. And I just hated that. Like, I hated it so bad. Because I was like, just be honest. I'm not stupid. 
you know? Right. And I never wanted to smoke weed. I didn't grow up, like, thinking I was going to do that. Their program was in full effect, and one of the things they really pushed that I kind of held on to was just the whole, like, don't give in to peer pressure, you know? And, like, that was a real thing. Like, friends being like, no, just do this, just do that. And I'd be like, no, no interest, you know? And so my parents just lied up and down. Like I walked into my mom's bedroom one day and it's like smoky and the window's open and she's sitting there fucking red eyed, just looking at me like a deer in the headlights, like, oh fuck. I was like, what is that smell, mom? And I must've been like 12. I knew goddamn well what it was because I'd been smelling my whole life and like I'd put two and two together. And she just looked at me and was like, uh, uh, it's the new mattress, go away. The new mattress. <laughs> so I totally busted her. And like still at that point, I didn't really, even want to smoke weed but I got sent to a behavioral camp when I was 12 because I got a little bit unruly okay and when I when that happened like I wasn't having any type of drug issues or substance issues it was more just I realized I was my own authority you know like I realized like you're no different than me what gives you the power to tell me what to do and so that got me into a lot of really bad situations I just lost what I was saying too uh, no, <laughs> that you have been sent. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, how'd you start smoking weed? <laughs> yeah, so they sent me away to this place in San Bernardino. And unfortunately, it's like a bunch of drug addict kids that their parents send them to the same place. And these kids don't want to be there, you know. And we're all in the middle of the fucking woods up in the mountains. We've got little log cabins that they have us locked away in with, you know, alarms and security. But I spent my six months there listening to these kids glorify not just weed, but everything else that they were doing. You know, like I learned all about every single drug that I know when I was 12 years old in some place that was supposed to be helping me. But instead, what it was doing was opening up this huge door to all of these things that I didn't have access to. Like the information from these kids that are just like, oh, my God, I miss it so much. Like all their fun stories. You know, so it really that I think was like the turning point, because now I went from you can't peer pressure me like I have no interest to being like, what? I mean, that sounds kind of fun. Like, really? Like, it's not scary. The opposite effect of what was supposed to happen going to camp. Yeah, exactly. Like they trained me to know so many things that I shouldn't know. And learning from other people in there. Yeah, it's crazy. Exactly. So when I got out of there, now next time someone's like, "Hey, you want to smoke some weed?" I'm like, "As a matter of fact, I do. I would love to." So I started smoking probably when I was like, I think it was like 14, and just progressively did more. Honestly, I did psychedelics before I ever smoked weed. Like, that was more accessible to me and more interesting and whatnot. But then I decided to start smoking weed, and it really, like, helped a lot of things. Like, I've got ADD, you know? My family tried to take me to doctors to have it diagnosed when I was little, and I was like, I don't have a problem. You have a problem. Stop trying to send me to doctors thinking that this is something wrong with me. something wrong with you. So... What I didn't realize is I was actually, when I started smoking and noticed these differences in like even just like the way that my brain was working, the way that my attention span was different, I realized that everything that everybody had said is fucking bullshit. You know, all of a sudden, like I was able to focus a lot more. My anxiety was a lot lower. And so, you know, as kids, we're just smoking to get high. 
but I'm seeing like this noticeable difference. I'm not really sharing it with anybody else because at that point, especially in Utah, this isn't medical. This is felony shit. For like sure, this yeah. is drugs. Right. You know. It is. I'm assuming like eighty-ish in the eighties. No, it was nineties. Nineties. Okay. Yeah. Like uh, I want to say late nineties. Okay. I I was supposed to graduate in '99. Okay. So like '94, '95-ish. Okay. Yeah, mid '90s. Yeah. Yeah, so I uh, continue to smoke weed. I We didn't get the good stuff. We got all the Mexican brick weed that yeah. would come up, and that was perfectly fine. You know, that's where I learned about my my grades of weed because you had the really, really shitty, and then you had the shitty, and then you had the kind of shitty, and then you had the shitty, but it doesn't have seeds. And then you had, like, the beasters that were very much not bricked up, but still not, like, fucking great, you right. know? So, yeah, I got to learn in all sorts of different stages. Yeah, that's funny. And so, like, the better quality stuff, as far as you knew, was coming from where? Mm, it was coming from Pacific Northwest and from yeah. California. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, from Utah, you go and, like, now you've smoked weed. At what point do you start growing weed? Well, I was married and had two kids by the time I was 18. Okay. And I... Got two full-time jobs, and my ex-husband was not helpful at all. He had some really bad drug habits and just really made me work a lot harder than I needed to. And he he kind of inspired me to start reaching out with the weed more. Like, he needed to smoke weed, otherwise I was going to kill him. Like, he was horrible when he wasn't smoking weed because of all the things I was doing for him. So I started originally piecing stuff out just to keep him supplied. And then I think I was about 26. I finally had enough of it. And so I left him, divorced him. But in the time of doing that, I also decided I was going to leave my job because I didn't want to work at a desk job. I didn't want to be in sales. I didn't want to be stuck in front of a computer all day. So I kind of had like this midlife crisis at like 26. To where I was like, fuck this, fuck you. My dad's an electrician, and he had reached out numerous times to try and help get my my ex-husband a job. Okay. And so I called my dad, and I was like, Dad, I want to work there. He was like, I don't know. You're a girl. I don't know how they feel about that. I was like, I don't care. Like, put me on the phone with them. So I quit my job, and I talked my way into being an apprentice electrician. They originally offered me a parts driver job and I had to kind of shut him down. And I was like, no offense, but I don't want to be your parts bitch. I want to work in electrical. I was like, give me a week. I was like, I know you guys aren't accustomed to hiring girls, especially, you know, I'm pretty young, you know, at that point. And I was like, just give me a week. And if you don't like my work, I'll leave. No hard feelings, you know. And so I started and I just loved it. And I picked it up really quick and I learned all the basics. And I had some friends that once they realized that my entire situation changed and I'd left my ex-husband who they didn't trust so they wouldn't give me a lot of this information on stuff they were doing, they called me and they were like, hey, I hear you're doing electrical work. And I was like, yeah. They were like, okay, well, you got to come to the house. (laughs) So I go to their house and they bust out this huge case of weed and it's just jar after jar after jar. And it's more fucking weed than I've seen in a while that wasn't in a brick. 
you know. So they were really kind of my introduction to like, this is like good weed. I couldn't smoke that with my ex-husband because he would have bankrupt me and he already <laughs> was. Right. So at this point, that opened up the entire door for me to be like, okay, so this is a whole new world. And they were like, we need your electrical skills. We're going to need you to come up to California and help us wire up this grow that we're doing. And I was like, okay, but I'm going to do it in exchange for lessons. I was like, you got to show me everything you're doing. And so that was the deal. So they were the first friends that I went up and helped wire everything in and Every little bit of knowledge that I could get, I fucking kept in my head and I would go home and kill it in my little delivery service that I had going. Yeah. But any opportunity that I had that somebody else would be like, hey, I heard you're an electrician. Can you do this for me? So that was really my end to growing was being in the electrical field. Yeah, it's kind of a unique way in because I've heard, you know, obviously from people that I've talked to, especially people who grow that electricians are like a weird thing. Like it's somebody that obviously there has to be a huge trust level mm -hmm. with that particular person in that case, you know? So that's real interesting. And so, you know, what were some of the, I guess, main basic things that you learned at first while you were helping them essentially do the electricity? Pretty the much everything just different styles like going to help different people kind of like they were doing like flood and drain you know like i'd never seen wheat growing only plants i'd grown were fuck i was 13 i think and i no i was 14 because it was after i started smoking weed but i was like i don't have to buy this because there's seeds in it so i can just grow these so i had a couple plants in my closet knew nothing about it i think i had one boy and one that spit out like a couple hairs before my cat ate it but it Yeah, like just learning every little bit and seeing the different setups and like going from start to finish because I would also go up there and help trim. So then I get to see this whole part of the thing as well. The hardest thing about learning from a lot of people, though, is unlearning. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. If you learn bad habits and or not necessarily bad, maybe even like things that aren't as effective, yeah. you know, it's hard to break, you know, doing what you already know how to do. Yeah. So, yeah. So learning everybody else's mistakes when everybody's got like this confidence that they know what they're doing, you know, that was the hardest part. A big thank you to our Patreon community for continuing to allow us to produce these episodes like episode 17. A special thank you to some of our biggest contributors, including American hash makers in Washington, the homie Nate, a.k.a. Dabadoo710, Hashmakers Union 73, Kevin from Lifted in Vina, Kyle, aka the Full Mel Fiend, Daniel in Connecticut, the US Hash Queen herself, Jen Doe 420, the cool dudes from Mission Melts in Massachusetts, Burp and Terps in Washington, the Hashishin in Illinois, Morgan, aka Root to Rosin, Thomas the Oregon Hashishin, and David from Totem Solventless in California. I thank each and every one of you. Now back to the episode. But after helping so many people with their grows and then coming in to help them with the garden, things like that, and just realizing the price point, you know, and the fact that, like, if I grow this myself, then I'm not going to have to be this middle entity. Right. You know, and on top of that, I'm not at the mercy of them as far as what weed I have access to. So I helped a couple people with some underground stuff and a couple 
really illegal states and just kind of realized, like, I have kids. And if I really want to do this to scale, I'm going to have to get out of Utah, you know. I'd been working in local hip-hop in Utah for a while. Okay. And I'd originally got into that because I thought it would be a great customer base. That's smart. Unfortunately, unfortunately, none of them grew, but all of them kind of got into hip, not all of them, a good majority of them got into hip-hop for the same reason that I did, which was, this will give me a customer base. So I realized we were all kind of getting the same price points. You know, yeah. and I had to be really careful not to step on people's toes and ask the wrong people because I had to work with this guy when I was throwing an event, you know, and yeah, so I didn't want tricky. him upset with me because I steal his customers. So, yeah, it was uh, it was tricky. And I was like, God, I just got to get the fuck out of here. So that was kind of like the thing that got me out was the very first Cannabis Cup in Denver. With the hip hop that I was doing, I actually ran like a full monthly event to where I had locals on I would have to go like make sure that they were decent first so I'd go see their shows but I put a collaboration of artists on and then I also did like an open freestyle battle with prize at the end so we would get all these local guys that would come in and they would just love this event but as I'm doing all of this I'm also running around with my camera taking professional photos you know so that's where I started to get to know a lot of people and everybody knew me for having my camera Okay. So I had someone actually call me and they were like, hey, will you come do photos at the Cannabis Cup? I can get you a ticket, possibly, and you can ride up with me. And I was like, oh, my God, a what? A Cannabis Cup? What is this? Like, So we went and it changed my life. Like I got there and it's the first time that I was able to look around and be like, holy shit. Like I found my people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, that was kind of the turning point. And I ended up meeting someone there and just kind of found my way to Washington. And they already had a grow set up. And so I was ready to just integrate into that. I had bought a bunch of equipment before I moved out, knowing that there was a full open garage. But I was like, I'll move there if this is mine. Right. So I went in, wired up my first personal grow. And that's kind of... That's what got me out of Utah was that very first cup, you know, and actually being able to see this culture and this community and like all these people. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. Yeah, it was all underground kind of. Yeah. Basically. What year was that? What year was, what year was the first rec cup in Denver? I don't know. Thir- I want to say 2012 or 13. I want to say 13, but I, I don't know. Might have been. It was either 2012 or 2013. Okay. Yeah. Cool. You know, one thing that you brought up a few times is obviously your, your mother mm-hmm. and your mother while all this is going on. You know, I'm curious, especially coming from, like you said, a household where cannabis was being used, but like not talked about or, you know, almost like hidden, mm-hmm. you know, how, what's your approach with your children and cannabis and your involvement in it essentially? Well, my parents lying to me the whole time really kind of opened my eyes up. And, you know, after I got into plenty of trouble as a kid and started kind of evaluating my life, like, why am I making the choices that I am? You know, my first daughter, I got pregnant when I was 16. I had her when I was 17. So there was a lot that went on. I kind of had to question, you know, how do I want to raise my kids? You know, how do I keep my kids from wiling out like I was trying to do? 
you know, how do I keep these emotions from them that makes them want to kind of like rebel and step away? And a huge part of that for me was that feeling of being lied to, you know, because I was like, like, I get it. You're not supposed to do it. But like, why would you not tell me? You know, like, you don't trust me. Right. And so, like, I genuinely, like, that was really hard for me. It was a trust thing. You know, it wasn't a drug thing. It wasn't, it was nothing but trust. Like, you're going to look me in my face and you're going to lie to me about it. So, I decided from the very get-go, like, I'm going to be 100% honest with my kids no matter what. And I'm just going to have to educate them and teach them, like, because we're in Utah, so it's no joke. You know, that's why my... That's why everybody would hide it, because you don't want to accidentally tattletale on somebody. And then there's jail time involved and CPS and all the shit that shouldn't happen. So when I had my first daughter, that's when I decided I'm always going to be honest. So kind of in preparation for them as they grew up, because I have three daughters. The older two, like right before they went into kindergarten, I knew that they still had the D.A.R.E. program going. So I was terrified, right? Like, what if my kid goes in and says something? How do I handle this situation? So what I did was I sat them down, not together, but like as they entered, like almost ready for school. And I was like, okay, we're going to have a really important discussion right now. And I explained cannabis to them and why they couldn't say anything about it. And unfortunately, the approach that I had to take because the consequences were so fucking great is I had to be very upfront to the point, you know, I mean, kids, what, five? And I'm sitting down saying, okay, do you think I'm a good mom? They're like, yeah, of course. And I'm like, okay, do you want another mom? Like, what? No. Like, okay, well, then you can never tell anybody about this, you know? Like, I had to be really harsh about it. And they were like, what? And I was like, they will take you away from me and they will make you have a new mom. Yeah, I mean, there's severe consequences yeah, having to look my five-year-old, and I've done it with all three of my children. Each time they turn five and get prepared to go to school, I had to sit down and have this very serious talk. And so they knew, you know, I was like, they're like, but why? Like, you're, I don't understand, you know, yeah. why is this an issue? And so I had to just explain this is very legal. It shouldn't be. It helps people. But if you tell anybody Like, it's not just an oops. It's like, this will ruin our lives, you know? So they had to grow up with that. And so I took this very honest approach with them. And they were great. Like, they're so on cue. You ask my kids about weed, and they'll be like, what are you even talking about? Like, they hide it. Great. Right. Super great. But it's really hard to say something like that to your child. Yeah. You know? like. So then I had my daughter come home one day. I think she was probably, like, fourth grade. She came home and she was like, I really appreciate that you've been honest. But on the other end, I almost wish that you would have lied to us because it's really hard sitting in school and listening to these D.A.R.E. officers and the teachers and everything they're saying. Like they're sitting here calling my mother a drug dealer and I don't feel that way about you. But this is how they're describing you. You know, I was like, I know. And they were like, not just it hurts me to hear these horrible things that they're saying about what you do. It doesn't make any sense. Right. You know? Yeah, that's a tough position for both people because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I totally respect you being honest with them, but it also created, like she said, you know, this different truth or vision for her than what they were being taught. Mm -hmm. And, but at the same time, you wanted to be honest, right? You didn't want to do the same thing. And, you know, what I found interesting about the story with your parents was that before you got sent to the camp, 
even though you knew what they were doing or, they, you know, that they were smoking, you weren't really interested in it, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think by being honest with a child in a way, it may be a kind of uncomfortable in some senses, mm-hmm. but at the same time, maybe in the long run, it's the most effective way to let them know or educate them and make them, let them do their own, make their own decisions later on in a sense, you know, which they'll do anyways. Exactly. So that's interesting. And so when you guys moved up to Washington, was it all three of your daughters at that point? Yep. And how did you, how did that make you feel? I suppose in that sense, like, was there a sense of relief? Yeah, it was, it was a really interesting transition because they're used to seeing like regular weed that's not on the plant. And then with all this back bullshit that society had fed into their brain, when they see it growing on a plant, it's almost scary. That's like the epitome of it. Like there's, it's one thing to have weed. It's another thing to have like the plant. You know what I mean? So when we got to Washington, I set up my grow and I sat the kids down and I was like, okay, let's have this little chat again. I was like, things are different here. I was like, I was a drug dealer there and here, like I'm, I'm helping people, you know? I was like, I was helping people there too. But once we cross the state line, there's a huge difference. I'm no longer a criminal. Like people respect it and they need it and they appreciate it. And we're actually helping people. And so I was able to pull up like a really cool Facebook group that had a lot of patients on there that, you know, they were not necessarily looking for handouts, but it was a group especially for people to post their story and what they're going through, whether it be cancer or whether it be skin cancer or brain tumors or epilepsy or like any one of their ailments. And they would describe it and then they would say what cannabis did for them. And it would give anybody out there the opportunity that if they wanted to send them like a little gift package Mm -hmm. to help them with their stuff, that's what this page was designed for. But the content in it was very touching, very moving, very informational. And so I went through and I read a lot of these to my kids and I told them this is what is real. That everything that they were teaching you back in Utah, like that's not real, you know. This is real and we're helping people. And I also used that point to let them know, like, you can never touch my garden. You can never steal my weed. You can never, ever, ever, ever do any of that because not only are you going to affect me because as a parent, you can get me into a lot of trouble in addition to yourself. But all these stories that you're seeing here and all of these people that need this, it's literally saving lives or giving these people relief. I said, I need you to imagine how many people you would affect if you were to cause me to not be able to do it. I said, there are people out there with cancer that I help with this medicine. And if you were to get into my garden, I was no longer able to do this. Like you could potentially be costing somebody their life. Right. And I know it sounds harsh and a little over the top to put it that way, but it's true, you know? So they really understood it and they were able to get this whole different look on it. The interesting thing that I've noticed with my kids is I've got two that are older and one that's younger. Okay. The two that are older grew up in the Utah school district. They got all of the Utah prep on cannabis. So that's where all of their information had come from. That's where they established their emotions over cannabis. My youngest daughter grew up, like she started going to school in Washington. So she's kind of been around this the whole time, very aware. And so it's not as scary to her. 
not that it's scary to my kids, but like I said, their dad had some serious drug issues. Yeah. And they grouped it all together. So they really, the older two really had like this distaste for cannabis, period. Like wanted nothing to do with it. They've never smoked. I've never worried about them stealing my stash. You know, they know it's medicine. Right. And they actually asked me once. They were like, okay, so you tell us all these stories, but you don't want to smoke weed. And I was like, exactly. (laughs) They're like, okay, well, what if we were sick? I was like, if you were sick and there was something that I knew that this would help you for, absolutely. But are you sick? They're like, no. I'm like, okay, well, if you're ever sick, come to me if I feel like it'll help. But they're not interested in using it whatsoever. And all growing up, people would criticize me and they would be like, oh, your kids are going to be this or that, or they're going to get into trouble. Like, you're doing this wrong. You know, how can you be so honest with your children? You're opening them up to to the drug world. And I was like, no, like I'm explaining to my kids. And they're seeing that they see me consume it all the time. They're like, well, you don't act any different whether you're consuming or not consuming. Like, I don't understand, you know. Yeah. So just sheerly educating them. They've had zero interest. Yeah. None. It's funny and interesting how things play out, you know. Yeah. So now that you guys are in Washington and... You've seen a bunch of grow rooms, a bunch of styles. What does your first grow room look like? My first grow room had triple XL hoods, single-ended thousand-watt bulbs. It was double-car garage, and it was just very basic, you know? Kale's paint on the walls and the floor, a fucking window AC that would keep the whole thing cool, a couple DUs, and then was it. We were ready to go. Cool. And what kind of stuff were you running back then? Was that, like, the stuff that we talked about earlier? Well, when I had got into Washington, like I said, I'd moved up there to be with my ex-boyfriend and kind of, like, be able to start this whole thing together. He had his own little room back in the shop that he had a lot of really good genetics. He was super fortunate to be from Washington, be linked in with a lot of really, like, pertinent points of contact to be able to get some super good flowers. So I had a lot of his to play with. That's when I discovered, like, I wanted my own, you know. One of the first markets that I went to was the world-famous cannabis market. And I saw someone selling clones there. And so I bought one. And I think it was, like, a lemon tie. Yeah, fuck that lemon tie. So I get this lemon tie, and I started kind of collecting just things here and there. Strawberry cough, which is the strawberry kush was the first one that I got because in Utah I had strawberry cough come through like only three times. Okay. And I was like, I fucking want that. It's my favorite. So I searched that one out and then I got the lemon tie. And at that point, like we only had so much room for genetics, so I couldn't really pull in many more of my own. Okay. So the next one that was my own was that cottonmouth kush that I popped. So those were kind of my three, but I was able to work with all the other ones that he had. And then he'd pull in all sorts of stuff from all over. But I was kind of specific to like what I wanted, you know, and growing all these other people's clones. I was like, well, why do I got to grow someone else's thing? What if this seed was better than that one? I like this one better and they like that one better. So I wanted control over that, you know, and I wanted to be able to like kind of like having kids. Like you get excited. You're like, what are you going to look like? Like, what's your personality? You know, I think that's the fun thing about seeds outside of just like seeing all the, the potential genetic variables Mm -hmm. you know so do you still pop seeds or okay oh yeah 
And, you know, you brought up the story earlier about popping that one seed out of the six packs. Mm-hmm. For people that grow out there or maybe are going to start to grow, even if it's just for fun, how do you pop a seed? Like, how do you pick the seed to pop or no, just the basic? how do you actually basic? make it? Like, like how do, what's my what's tech? What's the process? Yeah. Yeah. Well, super easy. There's a couple different ways to do it. And I've used a couple different methods, but they're all pretty much the same. Use the paper towel method in the baggie. You can soak them in a cup for 24 hours or just till they barely pop. Okay. And then you can put them in a paper towel. You can put them directly into the root cube or you can take them from the paper towel and then put them in root cubes. My favorite that I've done recently, which my girlfriend, Miss Rad Reefer, kind of got me onto uh-huh. was the directional popping of seeds. So it used to be that we would just throw a bunch of seeds in a paper towel, get the paper towel wet, put it away, wait until all these curly cues come out, and you've just got this little mess of seeds. Right. Well, she had posted up on her Instagram one day that she started hanging her bag. So you would line up the seeds so that you knew that the bottom, the tap root, was going to all go okay. one direction. Okay. And then you set your bag up straight so it's up and down. So now these seeds are not flat and it doesn't go everywhere. Roots want to go towards the fucking ground. So now you have all these perfectly straight roots that are reaching for for the ground. Yeah, Yeah, and it makes it so that you can just plop them right in the root cubes easier. It's just a great tech. Plus, it's really fun to see all your little soldiers lined up, (laughs) you know? Yeah. No, that's cool. Do you ever apply any heat to the soap paper towel in the plastic bag? Nope. Just as is. Just as is. Because if you think about a lot of cannabis is if you think about in its natural atmosphere, what does it do? You know? So cannabis plant gets seeds, plant dies, seeds drop to the ground, freeze over. As spring comes, ground is warming up, but it's still cold. They get that little taste of moisture, but it's still cold in there for them. So in the initial popping of the seeds, like I just leave it room temp in a little dark area, usually like in the back of one of my cupboards or something. Right. And they'll just pop naturally. If you put heat on it, you risk not having them pop or having the roots rot out because when they're that small, they're just so delicate. Yeah, and plus with the moisture. Yeah. Yeah. How has your growing style changed from when you first moved out to Washington until now? It's changed a lot. Like I said, I've been, it's a constant battle of unlearning misinformation. And even on top of that, even when they give you good information, like I've lived so many different places that I can't grow the exact same everywhere because there are different variables depending on where you are. So I've just kind of had to cater to where I'm at. You know, what do I need? How do I just get my environment the way I need it to with all of these outside influences? I mean, growing in Washington is different than growing in Maine, which is different than growing in California, which is different than growing in Spain. Right. So you just, I've kind of had to readjust my growing on a lot of different levels as I'm going to these different places. But it used to be just... I always loved growing the bigger plants because I was trying really hard to stay within like medical limits, but still get a really decent sized canopy. Okay. So the first person I was growing with used to always grow small and lots. And I was like, well, but if we want to try and stay legal, because like you do have my kids. So like there are precautions that I'm going to take. Right. The closest I can get to legal is figuring out like, hey, I can train these and I can get the same 
coverage from one 15 to 20 gallon as I can from, you know, six, five gallons. Right. So that was a huge part of my learning was being able to transition from the smaller plants, which I'd always seen everybody grow. I'd never seen anybody grow monsters. But I was like, I want to grow a big one. Like, why can't I do the same thing? Yeah, less plants. Yeah. Yeah. So in the beginning, I was staking those, you know, bamboo or like the metal stakes, just whatever I needed. But they were taller than me. Like I, my favorite <laughs> is to grow like six foot plants, Yeah. you know. So staking them was a real bitch, but it was very hands on and gave me the opportunity to like inspect every plant down to every single leaf, checking for bugs, checking for any issues, checking for harms. Since I grow a lot from seed, like I very rarely take in clones. Okay. So I'm constantly checking for herms because it just takes that one with that right. slight instability to kill your whole room. So as much as staking is very time consuming and not efficient, it still had a purpose, you know. But since those days, I actually switched to the nets so that I can spread it out and support it and you know, I think as all of us are continuing to learn about this plant, like all these different techniques come about. And if one makes sense to me, I like to try it. So I'm just constantly open to just trying to find like what's going to work best. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it sounds like you just adapt. Yeah. You know, and like you said, depending on where you are. And that's, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is I know. So you're back in Oregon mm-hmm. right now, but you were recently in Maine, mm-hmm. right? So I was curious if you could kind of tell me a little bit about why you were in Maine and, you know, what you were doing there. Yeah. So when I was living in Washington, right before I moved to Maine, I was working for Gavita, the lighting company. Okay. They were in the process of being acquired by Scott's Miracle Girl. They were acquiring all these different businesses. It was a great opportunity for me to be able to see a whole different side of the market, seeing it from the hydroponics side, kind of stepping away from being the grower to being able to go in and evaluate people's facilities. You know, so I would get the opportunity to see these huge facilities and answer questions and help with not just the lighting, but because I had the background with plants I did, like I got so much great information from them and whatnot. But what happened was, When they let us know, like 30 days before they could let the public know, when they let us know that they acquired Sunlight Supply, which is the distribution company, I was like, I'm fucking sunk. Like, they're going to lay all of the specialty reps off, you know? So I just had this gut feeling that I knew that it was coming. Okay. And at that point, like, I was... I was really tired of traveling around so much because I had to sacrifice a lot of time with my kids to do so. And I had to really stop and think, like, what what do I want to do with myself right now? In Oregon and in Washington, like, the laws are already established. It's really difficult to come in as a single source, you know, not a large company, not, like, any type of backing, and try and do anything there. But Maine... Maine was still just new territory and they're still operating medically. It's basically like stepping back in time, like five or six years before rec hit. So I kind of saw that as an opportunity to be able to go somewhere fresh where, you know, I could help them by sharing my experiences with the legal markets that I had just had to go through all those changes and that transition. So, yeah, Maine was just really like a great opportunity for me to be able to get back in the garden 
and have an ability to try and establish a name for myself again. So yeah, that's what I did. I threw up my garden, I popped some seeds and just work, work, worked and kind of stayed to myself in the middle of a cabin in the woods. And Yeah, you were telling me a little bit about that earlier. Yeah. It sounds cool, but you were saying that after a while you were just like ready to get out of that bubble. Yeah, it can be very isolating. And I deal with PTSD from some things in my past. And so it's very easy for me to get into a situation where I just want to isolate myself. So in a cabin in the middle of the woods, it's cold. I don't really like to leave much. I've got my garden there. I've got my hash lab there. Right. The only thing I need to leave for is like the grocery store or if I have to go to a school function. So... You know, I did really great in Maine. The people in Maine are legit some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. They're very welcoming and friendly and helpful. And, you know, that was really refreshing because over on the West Coast, everybody was just depleted and defeated and kind of just going along the grind that they had to. But Maine people still just had this fresh approach to it because they've been doing this forever. Black market, medical you know, and it's just a really amazing fucking community up there. And I had no idea it would be like that. So Maine was amazing to me. I had somebody reach out to me after the Boston Freedom Rally. And he was like, hey, I had seen you do a talk in California a couple of years ago at one of the High Times Cups. And since then, I've been following you and like really love your hash. He came out to see me at the Freedom Rally. Well, it was really brief was busy. I didn't really get a chance to talk to him very much. Well, when the partnership that I had up in Maine that I originally was working on when I moved up there, that did not work at all. So I stepped away and just continued on with my goal, which was to create my own thing. Okay. So I had posted a little announcement saying that I was ready to take on a couple clients, but I was going to be very selective and I didn't have a lot of time for many people. And so I had the same guy. His name is Ryan. He works for Rugged Roots. That's his company in Maine. Okay. Um, he reached out to me and just started talking to me about possibly running some of his material. And it turned out he was only like 20 minutes away from my house, which was unheard of. So I went and met up with him and kind of had to, like, they've never seen that kind of hash up there. Okay. Like, they see rosin all the time now, but right. as far as, like, bubble hash. Right. When I talked to him about it, he was like, well, I talked to my partners and the wholesale value seems like it's too low to make it worth it. And I was like, what's your wholesale value, you know? And he's like, 30 bucks. And I was like, you're not, you, you guys have never seen this hash. Like, this is different. Right. Give me your GMO. I'll wash it. We'll piece it out. And if the numbers work, great. We'll continue to do it. If the numbers don't work, great. We tried and I would still love to have, you know, interaction and stuff with you. Yeah. So I ended up running this GMO for him and it just came out so fire. And to the point where I had to call him and I was like, so I know you wanted some of this for your store, but like, how much do you need for your store? Because I had, I've had quite a few people reach out to me and I can get rid of all of it. You right, know? it doesn't need to go through Yeah, this. and so he was like, are you fucking serious? Because he'd never seen that. So he wasn't expecting that. So the return I was able to get and the, the response that he saw from this being available, like, it was just a no-brainer, you know? Yeah. And it's it's something that nobody in Maine does, except for there was one other very small-time guy up there that does the air-dried still. 
does a phenomenal job, super small scale, you know? So people hadn't had access to this on the shelves there. So that really kind of gave me the opportunity to start building my brand. And then I entered a competition out there because I'd never entered flowers. So I really wanted to do that. And I had one that I had popped and grown and like with all of the challenges that I had moving to Maine, because it was not easy. Like that was a horrible transition, but I was able to focus all that into my work and into my garden. So I was super proud of the stuff that I had. So I decided to enter the competition and very last minute, I was like, I still have just enough of that GMO. And I didn't tell them I was going to enter it. And I was actually like had it set aside for a friend. So I messaged my friend was like, I'm really sorry, but you can't have these. (laughs) And so I took it and I entered it. And I called Ryan and I was like, so I did a thing, but I'm not sure if I should tell you now or later. He was like, what? Like, tell me. And I was like, okay, I entered us in a competition. You know, and he just, he didn't know what to think of that. He was kind of excited, but nervous because they've always been underground, born and raised in Maine, just jamming. And so it was like his first kind of, oops, you're in a competition. Right. Yeah. That's so funny. Earlier we were talking with Fox. Yeah. From Run CBD, which shout out by, to him for getting us the spot to do the interview. Yeah. Thank you, Fox. Thanks, Um, Dave. you both were kind of talking about something that I found kind of funny. And it's like you both enter competitions like almost like last minute. And it's not like you're planning, OK, I'm going to grow and hash it for this. It's just like whatever you got, that's what you go with. So I found that kind of funny, you know, because I think a lot of people plan ahead. Yeah. Well, and it's if what you have is to that standard and. You know, we're all very critical of ourselves, but especially on the fly where you don't have enough time to overthink things. And like, you're like, that's fucking fire. I know it's fire. There's enough. Like, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. But it has to be fire. I'm not just going to grab any random thing and be like, I got just enough. That's the thing with me. I've entered only like people think I enter all sorts of shit, but I don't. I've entered five competitions total in my life and I've placed five times. And it's not because all my shit is fucking stupid fire. It's because I am insanely particular about what I feel the quality should be to actually be involved in a competition. Yeah. Well, so, that's what makes it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and so going back to the 2013 Santa Rosa, you said? 2014, 2014 Santa Rosa. That was what pl- you placed first in that, right? Yep. And is that kind of where you got... The U.S. hash cream, obviously. Yep, that's where I got it. Yeah. And I didn't give it to myself. (laughs) High Times kind of just dubbed me that. That's cool. So, yeah, I mean, previous to me stepping in, Mila was the only woman that had fetched an award from High Times in hash. And, like, even flowers that time, no women had entered and won. Right. So, yeah, that's where I got the name. I was told by everybody, like, I was the underdog completely. You know, everybody honestly told me they're like, oh, either Nick T or Bamp is going to win. Like, you don't, why are you even doing this? You know, even my own, like, crew that I was going with wanted nothing to do with me putting in my entry and whatnot. You know, they were like, this is dumb. I don't know why you're doing it. You know, you're not going to win. Like, you've only been doing this for, like, a couple months. Right. I was like, that doesn't matter. It's cool that you like just. Yeah. So I literally was like, fuck you guys. Like I'm doing this. Right. And so, uh, 
yeah, I didn't expect to win whatsoever. So when they, when I was walking up on stage because my group had gotten a high CBD edible, one of the awards for being able to cram a shit ton of CBD in there. So we were already backstage for that. And as we were walking up to that, somebody grabbed me in the crowd and they were like, hey, I heard that a chick from Washington won for hash. And I was just like, oh my God. So automatically my anxiety is through the roof. My fucking heart is pounding. I'm like, why are you telling me this right now? You don't want to know. <laughs> and so I was sitting backstage waiting. And like when they announced it, yeah, like my heart just dropped. I was like, oh my God. God. Yeah, that's what must have been like a really crazy feeling. I it mean, was. You know, it was. It totally was hard. Expecting it. Yeah. And then yeah. just you know being being the winner. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, that's actually the second time I met Mila. So went up on stage, got my award, and on my way coming down, Mila's the first person that congratulated me and hugged me, and like the feeling that that brought was amazing. Because I was like, you're the only other woman that's done that. You know, and like, I didn't mean to. I had zero idea I would win. Like, I didn't enter thinking, I'm going to kill it. Right. I entered thinking, you know, this will be fun. Like, I'm showing my respects and whatnot. So to have Mila there to walk me off the back of the stage, like. Yeah, almost surreal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I was just in so much shock that I just, I don't even know what the fuck was going on. (laughs) You know, like I just didn't quite believe it. And I had no idea what it meant. I was talking to Danny Danko and Bobby Black and they were like, do you have any idea what this means? And I was like, no. And so that's when I found out that, so I got first place for Hash, so did Mila, but I was actually the first girl in any of the competitions to do single source, start to finish all by myself. It was completely solo. Right. You know, so to not just to win a first place award, but to actually be like, I grew this, right. you know, and I processed this. Yeah. And nobody else had done that yet. And you selected it. Yeah. You know, almost any post I see about Raws and Evolution has to do with how quickly people have received their orders. Even in times when other companies aren't shipping as fast, Raws and Evolution keeps killing it. So if you need rosin bags or you need wash bags, Raws and Evolution's got you covered. They make all their bags out of the same high quality nylon. Nylon is one of the strongest and most durable materials out there, which is important when you're trying to avoid blowouts while making rosin or you're washing a bunch of material through their full mesh bags. Rosin Evolution not only gives you the best quality product, they give you the best possible price, the best customer service, and the fastest shipping. So if you already use their bags and you listen to our show, then you definitely should use the code THI. That's the letters THI with no spaces, and that helps you save 5%. If you're putting in a lot of work and you're ordering a lot of bags, that 5% adds up quick. And if you don't use their bags, then I definitely suggest that you do. Order some today and you'll likely have some really soon to try them out for yourself. And of course, also use our savings code. That's the letters T-H-I standing for The Hashish In to save 5% on your entire order. You can follow Rosin Evolution on Instagram at Rosin Evolution 100. That's the number 100 or visit them on their website, rosinevolution.com. The Kush, the strawberry Kush or 
mm-hmm. cough, I guess, at the time. Mm-hmm. That was a cut that you got, though, right? Yep. Okay. That was a cut that I got up at the market because I just, I had to have strawberry. Yeah. Like, it's my favorite. Yeah, and it's a nice one, you know. Um, yeah. I've tried Cubans before, and yeah, it's it's nice. Yeah, when I tried his, I was like, you got this in Washington, <laughs> didn't you? He's like, I know this cut. This is, I had this cut. I was like, that was, yeah, it's beautiful. Like, yeah. It's nice. Sorry to keep flip-flopping. So, but going back to Maine, mm-hmm. you enter the GMO, you enter the flower, first time for flower. You placed, obviously, you said? Yep. So, I got third place for flowers. Cool. And then I got first place for the hash. Oh, first place. Wow. Nice. So, yep. was the, the guy surprised, like, when you guys won it? Yeah. I called him right after, and I was like, so, Ryan, I got some news for you. <laughs> He's like, and I was like, we won. And he was like, are you fucking kidding me? He was so excited. And normally I only do single source. So that's like the first time that I had ever taken somebody else's work that I, that I was proud of the job that we both did, you know? So that was like my first group thing. So like to be able to bring this award back to him, back to the shop and be like, look what you guys did. Like, look what we did. Right was really, really an amazing experience for me. One of the hardest things and one of the reasons I'm not really, I don't really like entering the competitions I've decided is when you're a single source and you don't have a team, there's not much celebrating for me to be had to share that with someone else. So being able to have this collaboration with their group and having this be the first time that I can be like, this was us. like. Such a different feeling when when everybody's happy because it's a group effort. You get like a different satisfaction out of the single source, you know? Yeah, that's cool and interesting to hear the difference, yeah. you know? But it almost feels lonely. It's like I'm up there clapping for myself. Like, right. you know, of course people are happy for you yeah. and want to celebrate and whatnot. But when you can't share that experience with somebody else the same way, it almost takes away from it as much as it adds to it. Yeah. Yeah. So, basically, from what I understood, your hash making started almost from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Because your ex-boyfriend was doing his own growth, and, but they were doing the hydrocarbon. Mm-hmm. They were like, no, there's no room for a woman here. And you're like, all right, I'll do hash. So, let's talk a little bit about the hash making. You know, so you told me you started by learning just stuff online. Yeah. Well, I'd done, like, the beginning of my hash learning actually started when I was in Utah and we would get these just blocks of hash. They would be coins. Okay. You pressed in the coins and they would come through. I would be super excited because I was starting to figure out like, oh, so this sticky shit up here, this is what gets us high. (laughs) So then like, this is like a lot of that squished together. I want that. But nobody else wanted it. Like hash was just not sought after. So I would always get chunks for myself. Then I would piece it out to people and be like, you got to try this. And so the first hash that I learned to make was that old school pressed hash, like newspaper tech. So you get the newspaper wet, you roll the fucking hash ball in it, you know, you roll it in tinfoil and you bake it for a little bit. And as soon as it's the right consistency, we would take it outside and we would do a Buick tech. I'm assuming it's running over with the Buick. (laughs) Exactly. So you take two boards, put the hash in between run it over with the Buick. <laughs> so that was that was our hashtag. So when I started researching and seeing different people, like I think Nick T was probably one of the first that I'd ever like seen solventless hash. Right. I 
think it was the first Denver Cup that I went to that I actually saw it for the first time. But that was the only time I'd seen it. So as soon as I started seeing more things about it and got just pushed right out of doing BHO and didn't really want to compete with the boys because we're supposed to be a team here, you know. So when I realized you could get that kind of clarity out of it, like I was just, I was amazed. And I was like, I want to do that, you know. A lot of what I picked up a lot of my skills from is candy making. So when I was younger, my aunt was a chocolatier and she owned this chocolate shop and she used to make fine chocolates. So I went out and I got some lessons from her. And doing candy is so involved that you wouldn't even suspect certain things would affect your end product the way they do. So having that knowledge behind me and being able to bring that over into the hash world was very, very important. If I wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have understand like the conversion and whatnot. But THC acts a lot similar to sugar. Like it's polymorphic, I believe it's called. So it can take on different structures as it recombines. So that's where you'll get the different consistencies. Well, if you look at sugar, it's the same thing. So like if you eat fudge and you get that fudge that's kind of gritty mm-hmm. and you can feel those sugar crystals in it, mm-hmm. it's because somewhere along the lines, they messed up. Whether it be the fact that you can't cook in a metal pan with sugar with a metal spoon, it'll sugar out. If you don't wash the sides with a pastry brush and keep those crystals that are forming on the sides down and dissolved, it'll sugar up. So it's kind of directly relates to hash. Yeah, that's super interesting. So we're seeing all these different consistencies that started coming out with BHO. And I started putting two and two together. I'm like, well, you've got shatter, you've got batter, you've got crumble. And if you compare that to the sugars... You got soft crack, you got hard crack, you got soft boil, you got hard boil. So it's these different consistencies and different techniques that allow you to get sugar to do all these different things. And that is what I carried with me over to the hash world is now we're starting to see all these different consistencies. And so I was able to pull a lot of that knowledge to put forth to, you know, figure out the different reactions and how am I going to get the best material and what are these little things that you have no idea would affect it? What are they? Right. So, yeah, there's so many factors that go into it, but you know, that's a pretty interesting kind of mindset to come from and bring into hash because it seems so valuable, you mm-hmm. know, knowing that there are so many variables and what the variables can do to, in this case, I guess, sugar, but also possibly resin. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that kind of maybe made the learning curve less steep for you? Absolutely. I almost felt like I went into it already knowing. I like transitioning from just knowledge of sugar into now I'm trying to make a product that looks like sugar, a product that can take on many different forms, depending with all the different messing around with BHO and stuff that we had been doing. That's where I started to see the different consistency changes and was able to kind of relate it, you know, like BHO, if you've got a tiniest spot that sugars out within no time, the whole thing's going to, well, it's no different than with sugar or with chocolate, let's say. If you seed it, then you will be able to start the sugar. So that fudge that's really grainy, Mm -hmm. somewhere it got seeded. So one of those small crystals didn't get off the side or the reaction to the metal on metal caused this one piece of sugar to crystallize the whole thing. So it was the same. Right. You know, like, what is this sugar? Like, everybody liked the wet sugar, BHO, and didn't understand why it did this or that. Then I realized, oh, well, if you scrape this and add this to it, which you also don't do with candy. Right. It's going to nucleus the whole thing. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah, it's funny how hydrocarbons inform or have informed, I guess, the solventless world, right? Mm -hmm. And like the consistencies, the looks, and how it's been kind of mimicking that. But you seem to still be washing pretty, I would call it at this point, traditionally, where like you're sieving mm -hmm. and air drying. So is that your preferred method? Yeah. I actually haven't even touched a freeze dryer yet. Not saying I'm not going to, but everybody else is. And I don't necessarily need to. I have not been able to see a freeze-dried product that compares to traditional air-dried. As far as like production, you can pump out a lot of production not doing air-dried. But that old-school air-dried just holds a different high. It holds a different effect. You know, you can, you can see the skill and the hard work that goes into it. How do you separate all those little teeny tiny sticky dots, you know? Like, right. how do you do that? Well, close, close attention. Whereas a freeze dryer, you just slap it on a patty, freeze it, boom, they're separated. It's sand. It's great. Fucking great. But I've also never met a freeze dried hash that can hit as hard and keep the longevity of the high as well as the traditional full melt. So full melt for sure, for you, is kind of the most elite thing. It's it's like, yes, 100%. And as far as personally doing it, it's almost like being an artist in painting, you know? Like, some people sketch, some people paint. Right. Some people whatever else. Right. Um, I can do that. I can do all of it if I want, but, like, my passion really goes into full melt. I think the air-dried full melt really leaves you, like, naked to everybody, like, any single flaw that's in there is visible. Right. Rosin takes that out. Like, you you can't see. I mean, you'll have the flaws, but it's not the same. Like, you're pressing it through a screen to clarify it even more, whereas with full melt, you get one shot. Right. So, you know, I found it interesting earlier when you were talking about when you were keeping a close eye on the trichomes before, I think, that first competition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how there wasn't a lot of information, as much information as there is now. Do you still feel like it's more about observation, more about, like, intuition, knowing when to pull plants for hash specifically and, you know, obviously the resin? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it is because I can't I mean different plants color out differently so there's not really a standard that I use to say when it's this or when it's this percentage or it really is kind of just intuition and hands-on and you know uh smell uh texture like I go in there and I touch them and I look at them and I it's just something that especially since I've been growing specifically for resin content it's a lot different than just growing for flowers You know, so you're really focusing in on that resin and depending on the plant, some plants don't even don't even darken out. You know, they will spit white hash all day. Right. And some of them will be really dark when they get to the point that you want to pull them. So it's just really inconsistent and you do kind of have to have a feel on it and you do have to know what you're looking for, you know, because if you pull it too early, you're losing yield You're getting completely different terpene profiles, so you're getting a different high. If you pull too late, it's a lot harder to clean, for one, and just, again, a different profile and different effects. Right. 
So being able to find that midpoint and really kind of decide what are you pulling for is kind of a lot of it. I don't pull just to make blonde hash. I pull to get the full potential out of each strain. Whether that mean that full potential is pulling seven days early or if that full potential means taking it clear to fruition, you know? So but, what are you looking for? What What is full potential? I mean, obviously, like you just said, it varies so much. Mm -hmm. But if there was a singular thing, is there a singular thing that you're looking for in the resin? Yeah, you're looking for just kind of the, the way that that strain matures out. You know, some strains, I like to pull them when they're mostly milky because that's when they start getting this different flavor. A lot of it is that aroma. Like if you're pulling for terps, you're going to want to pay attention to where the terps are because there comes a certain point where that'll drop off you start losing terps, right. and then you've missed your window. So Yeah, and, you know, I see that you smoke flour as well. Mm -hmm. So are you growing separate strains for that, or is it the same strains? You hash some of it, and you dry some of it, and if that's the case, how do you go about drying the flour for flour and then the flour that you're using to wash? I smoke the same. If I'm going to smoke the hash, I'm going to smoke the flour. Okay. You know, again, just kind of depends on what I'm going for. Sometimes I will go through and just pull a whole plant, do fresh frozen, bucket off the stems and freeze it right away. Sometimes when I'm dealing with like different temperatures, as far as like the hash lab, and I've got a really sticky, greasy strain that I know is going to be hard to work with. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll hang half of it. I'll give it a real slow, cold dry. So I'll do like 60 degrees, 60% humidity, let it hang for 10 days. And then I will do a blend of the live out of the freezer with the dried cured. Because in some circumstances, like if I can't get my cold room down to as cold as I want it to be, those sticky strains, like I'm going to be stuck microplaning those. And that's not my favorite method. Like I like to sieve. Okay. I only have microplanes for emergencies. So, you know, if I can't wash the strain and be able to do a sieve with it, then I'm going to lean towards a different strain until I can get my atmosphere dialed into where I can work with it. And it's a little more manageable. But when you do, and I don't think a lot of people take this into account, but when you do this mix of the dry cured with the fresh frozen, yeah. if it's from the same plant, your heads are going to dry out either way, right? But now you've got this profile of your fresh frozen, then you've got this profile of your dried cured, which is different, but the same because they're the same right. thing. Right. Then you mix a little bit of the dry in with the wet and like the consistency, it almost makes it so that those really sticky ones are a little bit more handleable. Like not a lot. You still have to be on your game and on point. But even if it takes out just that three second, you know. Right. It just mixes it enough to make it a little more manageable. Yeah. 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 That's really interesting. I don't think that I've heard anybody... I don't know that anybody does that because I get really funny looks anytime I mention it. But like that's it that's one of my <laughs> yeah that's one of my tricks that I've always done is like it's not just a flavor selection when I blend stuff. Right. It's also playing with that consistency because you can give yourself some control over things. Yeah. You know, like Gorilla Glue Four. Everybody knows that's sticky as shit. And if my room's not at forty-five degrees, that's not going through a sieve. But if my room's at, say, 55 degrees and I do, like, 60% wet and 40% dry, 
Then all of a sudden, it's almost like dropping the temperature in my room five degrees. Interesting. Yeah. It gives me that little bit of play to have those little dry heads helping to separate the wet so that I can work with that. Yeah, that's a cool way to change the variables. Yeah. You know, that's one of the, like I said, I don't think I've heard about that. And like you said, maybe there's nothing. Hear it here first, folks. <laughs> so washing style, Are you mentioned the machines earlier. Are you still a machine primarily washer absolutely the only time i would go to using the hand stir method would be if i had a shit ton of material that i needed to make and i didn't want to have additional washing machines but over a big bucket and a paddle like i would much prefer to just link up three machines and run them that way right yeah it's so funny to hear everybody's take right yeah. everybody has a different style and I think really what it comes down to is just whatever works for you well and a lot of it has to do with like I see these guys and it's their helpers that are stirring their bucket because it doesn't take all that much skill to stir a garbage can full of hash right. you know a washing machine has been doing it forever and it spins it like that's all it does you're just agitating it so I don't have that ability to have somebody else stand there and stir my shit. I'm already breaking my back enough, shaking my bags, because when you're receiving, like, the most important part of it is getting the moisture out of the patty right to the point that you're able to put it through that sieve. So I'm really having to, like, work my bags a lot more than if you're using a freeze dryer. Right. You want that extra liquid so that you can have it spread out. Right. Well, for me, it's the exact opposite. I have to get as much water out of there as possible. What people don't realize is like the shaking and whatnot, the inside of your patty, like the middle of it, it's going to retain so much water. So a lot of people stop working their material before that's out enough. I feel like that's the main problem that people have when they try and attempt to do a sieved run is that you have to get the middle of the patty and it's hard to do. And it really genuinely takes a lot of bag work. So that fucks with my shoulders so sure. bad. So yeah. It's really yeah. You know, so, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. And so do you strictly get all that water out by bag movement or is there some type of wicking at times that you have to do? Both. Okay. First, it's bag movement. That's like the most important part of it, because like I said, if you put the patty to wick, which I'll use like just one of my little drying screens on mm -hmm. paper towels. But if you put it on there to wick and you haven't worked that patty enough right. to have that middle release a bit, right. then what ends up happening is your outsides of the patty will start gumming up while you're waiting for the inside of your patty to dry enough that it doesn't just squish through the seed. So this inconsistency between the edge to the middle is really like that's where a lot of the art comes in is learning those different things. And like, OK, how the fuck am I going to see this? This is too dry. This is too wet. Right. So the key there is really working it in those bags because that's the one opportunity that you have to get those trikes moving around and releasing some of that moisture. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. do you aim? I mean, obviously it depends on the genetics, but. Do you aim to hit particular bags with particular strings? Is that how, in part, how you're telling if the plants, you're pulling the plants like when you want them to in the end? I don't use bag size as any indicator okay. because I'm just a strong believer that there are so many different size heads. Okay. You know, as they start filling with the oil, they either are fuller or not as full, depending on its maturity and how they've ripened on the plant. Right. 
yeah, so bag size doesn't really matter to me other than when I pull my bags, I'll do my first run and I'll see what bags were my catch bags. And if there's any bags that I can eliminate to then make my product better, then that's where I make that decision is that first spin. Okay. So example, if my 90 and my 120 are both just fire as shit and you legit cannot tell a difference, the melt is the same, the color is the same, they both display that, like, that's my true 90. I'm not going to give you a 120 and a 90. Okay. Because I feel like there's different levels in the different bag sizes depending on where the maturity of that plant was. Right. So my 120 might have completely different levels of cannabinoids and terpenes than my 90 does, but they both melt and are amazing. I'm going to put those together because what that's going to do is that's going to increase. It's, It's no different than blending strains, except for now you're blending this individual plant's profiles because the plant has different profiles at different processes of maturity. Right. So that's kind of how I plan my stuff is, if that 120 bag just dumps and the 90 is amazing, I'll pull my 120 on the second run and I'll just pull catch the 120 and the 90. Yeah, no, that's interesting, know. you know, because one of the things I find kind of fascinating about water hash or, you know, the screening process is this idea that you're separating all the resin mm-hmm. into these different, you know, you can, I guess, call it maturity points. And like you're saying, reintroducing parts of it with each other are just really kind of still a part of the plant and it's not necessarily all of it but it's all the part that contains essentially the most oil Mm. at that point you know and so like you said the terpenes and the cannabinoids I think obviously are different in those ranges so having them together in that sense to me seems more effective Mm -hmm. you know but that brings up kind of an interesting point in that you know, if it doesn't melt, but it has an interesting profile, is it still worth you running something? Depends on what exactly we're going for. Okay. You know, and it also depends on the level of melt. Like, does it, is it not a six star, but it's a solid five? Like, there's a difference between that and is it a four? You know, and for the people that don't know the star rating system, like that's that's our only way to kind of measure like the quality of this and how we gauge it. You know, the meltier it is, the more oil content there is, you know. So, yeah, I find a purpose for all of them. Kind of if I get a four star, I like to use that to like roll joints and smear it with rosin and then cover it in the four star. Okay, I can't do that with six star. I've tried it. It's too melty, and then you get this mess of a joint, you know? But a solid four-star, there's nothing better than a fully solventless joint that's got rosin and four-star melt. And so you get the melt, you get the flavor, you get the effect, but you don't get the drippy, disgusting mess. Right. You know, so I just like to purpose everything for different things. I think everything has a place, and it's a matter of figuring out where you want to put that. But yeah, so for me, it's not all just melt. There's a lot of different variables. Cool. Yeah. Well, Jen, I know we've been at it for a while. I have a few last questions to kind of wind it down. Again, I'm super appreciative of your time. You know, one of the things that I read about you when kind of looking into you for the interview was kind of regarding one of the awards. I don't remember which one it was, but you brought up in one of your posts, you know, 
that from having from competing from that award, you ended up without a home for a while. Mm-hmm. And I wanted you to kind of just talk about that experience real quick. Yeah, that was a hard one. There's a lot of competition in this industry. And unfortunately, it was all personal. And that's winning that award really pulled my personal life into it more than more than it should have been. And so there was some hurt feelings involved after I won. You know, I would have liked to have been able to be proud of my accomplishments and whatnot. But kind of like going back to that whole, like, it's not as fun when you're doing something solo. Well, on the the whole other end of that is when you are doing something solo and somebody else has put in the same amount of work and the same effort, the same sleepless nights and the same, you know, same category of like what it takes to do this. And then they don't reach the expectations that they had for themselves. That really threw a negative spin on things. Growing weed, we have to be competitive. It's always been competitive. Even when I was in Utah, my weed's better than yours. Like, that's what these competitions are. It's like, mine's better, mine's better, you know? So it's great to feel accomplished and be like, wow, I did really good. But then you have these other people that, like, they didn't win. And they have their emotions over it, which is understandable. And they can go one of two ways, you know? They can either be appreciative for what they did accomplish and be happy for you, or it can really cause a negative situation. So after I won my cannabis cup, my relationship I was in just went to shit because this whole competitive nature came along and there was comparisons and there was resentment. And, you know, as more stores and patients were asking for my product, it was aggravating the situation more. And so because of that, there was a huge rift in my relationship to the point that There was a huge blow up and I was forced to leave because I couldn't subject my kids to that kind of an atmosphere, you know, and I don't harbor any resentment for what happened. And I've always kept my mouth very quiet about those circumstances because there's a lot that goes into play about it. And nobody wants to hear all your personal bullshit and they shouldn't. But it it really impacted me and my children's life a lot. I went from being on top of the world, like just happy and proud to just being completely ridiculed and just all that resentment came out, you know? So there was really a point where I had to choose, like, do I continue to subject myself to this or do I leave, you know? And there's a situation that I just felt like I really had no choice because it the interaction we were having went against everything that I wanted to teach my children in life. And so, yeah, we ended up with a couple laundry baskets full of our clothes and no money and no phone and no car and one distant relative that lived an hour and a half away in Oregon that I'd met two or three times. And because of having my children and like needing to stand up for myself and needing to show them like, is we never put up with this kind of behavior from anybody, you know, like I had no choice. So I started from complete zero and I would do it all over again. 
Because one thing that I would never want to hear is you got to where you're at because I did this for you. And this, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that on so many different levels, whether it's a partner or, you know, a friend or even like a connection that introduces you to somebody. And now they feel like they have some sort of play in this. Like all that is just really hard to get away from. So that really kind of forced me to do it on my own. You know, so after the cup, I kind of fell off and it's because I was getting my own shit together. You know, I found a partner that was one of my good friends back in Utah, um, silent investor, just very small. You know, I just I needed to get my 10 lights back up so that I could try and pick up the pieces to where everything ended. And like the growth that came from that and the confidence after going through all that and just feeling that sense of loss and being alone and being scared, like you've never felt anything as a human being painful as looking at your three children sleeping on somebody's floor, not knowing what the fuck you're going to do next because you feel like the rug was just pulled out from underneath you. I can imagine. You know? Yeah. And so I jammed away and I think everything I've accomplished after that has meant so much more But it's also kind of got me in this mindset to where it is hard for me to maybe like reach out and trust people enough to work with them to be able to progress in a certain manner or in a certain direction. So I've always just kind of kept it small and manageable myself because I'm very protective over my kids and everything that I've worked so hard to do. And yeah, like I definitely wouldn't be the strong individual that I am today if that hadn't occurred. You know, like that was the first time that it was like, okay, this is all me, period. Like, what do you got, girl? Right. So I was really able to put a lot of work and a lot of heart and, you know, there was purpose behind it for me. It was like pulling myself up out of the fucking bottom of the bottom and showing my kids like, look what we can do. Like, you don't need anybody. Like, as long as you believe in yourself and as long as you put in that work you can do anything, you know? So they got to see that firsthand. And the pride that I had from having my first grow after that happened and the first fucking plant that I put in my flower room, like I cried because I felt more accomplished at that moment than I did standing on stage with a trophy, you know? Yeah, that's cool though. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, it sucks to have to go through stuff like that, yeah. hardship like that, especially with, Three little kids depending on you mm-hmm. or maybe they weren't so little at the time but no they were little you know it's, yeah it's also can be a catalyst right and mm-hmm. it was for you so absolutely cool. and yeah like i said i harbored no ill feelings or resentment towards that situation because as horrible as it was right in the heart of it like that allowed so much growth for me You know, so much confidence in myself to be able to be like, okay, you did it, you know? So, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't change it for the world. Like I would have liked to have continued on the path that we were on. I think that if there wouldn't have been that abruptness and that quick stop and change of direction and, you know, I would be in a very different place, you know, but it didn't go that way. It went this way. And. Like, I wouldn't change it for the world. It made me a better grower. It made me a better parent. It made me a better person. And most of all, like, 
it just, it really brought to light like the confidence that I need to have in myself to be able to start from these crazy situations and somehow find a way to make it work, you yeah. know? Yeah. yeah. And, so. you know, I'm curious through all these hardships outside of like having to make it in a way, what kept you going? Like, is it just the love for the plan? Love for the plant, stubbornness. I think I needed to prove to myself that I didn't need anybody else, you know? I had all these skill sets. I just wasn't confident enough in myself. So the confidence alone that it brings is, it's nothing that I could even put into words, you know? And the way that actually reaches so many different areas of your life, not just the one, is life-changing. You know, it really makes you appreciate and value yourself and, you know, have compassion for the ups and the downs. And like, we are our own worst enemy, but we're also our own best cheerleader and support system. We just don't realize it, you know? Like you look to everybody else for support, whether it be emotionally or even like, hey, I need to build a grow. If I didn't have the electrical skills that I did to be able to do the basics, like I would need that yeah. elsewhere. Right. So being able to put together all of these insane circumstances that led up to me being able to have all of those skills just by myself, clear down to setting up the grow. Right. You know, it really shaped my life to feel very independent and proud and, you know, show my kids like, look what we did, you know. So Yeah, that must be a really satisfying feeling. Yeah. For sure. And love for the plant, absolutely. Like that is that's where it's at. It's not love for the money or the name. It's love for connecting with the patients. I originally got into the whole medicinal side of things because my grandmother was battling cancer. I was able to read up about a lot of these extracts. And even though I was running packs and packs and packs, I had zero access to these extracts. I had zero connections that knew how to make it. Like I didn't have any of that. And I wanted to gather information. And unfortunately, my grandma passed away right as I got a lot of this information together. And that kind of started my path to be like, you know, just that feeling of helplessness that I had knowing like, oh, weed cures cancer. Well, cool, I got a 10-pack here. What the fuck do I do with it? Right. You know, like right. how? How? Nobody, I had no resources to find out how. So that's kind of what started me on like, okay, well, this is how. I'm going to go immerse myself in it. I'm going to do it myself. And the day that I moved out of Utah is the day that I realized now that I can do this legally, if the only thing that I did was have a voice and have a connection to where if somebody needed this product that I was not educated on at the time that I was looking for it. Zero options to get it. Like if I can provide something like that to somebody, if I can just tell somebody, take that ounce of weed, go soak it in fucking coconut oil in the oven and decarb it and eat it. That's all I needed to be able to help my grandma. Right. You know, but I didn't even have access to that information. So that's a big drive for me and why the plant is just so important because... People don't have access to the information. Even me, at the scale that I was, didn't have fucking access. It's different now that legalities are going in. It's opening up. Yeah. But there's still so many people that just don't know. No, it's true. And I mean, I think that's cool that that motivation has led you to, you know, help probably a bunch of people, you know. So yeah. that must be a good feeling as well. Do you think that there's this idea of a master grower? Does it exist? 
Can you ever be a master brewer? <laughs> I think it's just a silly title to differentiate between somebody that has been successful in a garden-ish <laughs> versus somebody that's kind of new. Right. I think that whole title got just out of hand. I would never call myself a master gardener or a master anything. Just the ego behind using that word itself is, yeah, it seems. is a little much for me. And really, like if someone's saying they're a master grower, there's a certain amount of humbleness that comes to being an actual grower. Right. I would never call it a master grower, but if you have that passion in your heart and then you have all of the skills and the information and the ability to back that passion up with the master grower, whatever level they expect, like right. you wouldn't ever call yourself master grower because you have been humbled, you know? Right. Like this plant has taught you you're not a fucking master. <laughs> Nobody's a master. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I've never asked that question before, but yeah, no. from a grower, I'm curious, yeah. you know, your take on that. The dough tips that you put out on your Instagram, I think those are cool. You educating people, is that something that will continue? Absolutely. And the dough tips is really just like these little tiny skills that are so important and could save so many people so much problems and time and effort. I'm not telling people to go wire their own grows, but I can show you how to wire an outlet very easily, you know? So dough tips will be something like that where I'm like, this is an outlet. This is what we do. Like, and I'll show just the basics, like something easy you can do. Or like if I need to MacGyver something, one of the ones I did was I converted a regular Gavita hood Uh into one of their wide angle hoods without having to go buy the wide-angled hood. Yeah. You know, so when I figured that out, because I'm like, these are brand new lights. I'm not going to go spend 30 or whatever, however much it costs for a new fucking, a new thing. Right. Especially when I can just grab some fucking pliers and open this one up, and all of a sudden it's almost like just one of those fucking adjust-wings. Right. But with giving you a string. Yeah. Well, the cool thing about that is you can adjust your angle on it, and so it helps that home grower that's like, fuck, like, what do I do? Right. So this gives them, like, the, the leeway to be able to adjust your spread. And, and people just don't think of that shit. Yeah. And it's something you literally can do by yourself. I saved myself, what, if they're 30 bucks a piece, nine to 10 of them, how much money did I just save myself? 300 bucks. By sitting there with a fucking pair of pliers and ripping one apart. Like, I've saved some people some money just by that. Like, I've had a lot of thank yous for that one specifically. That's you cool. know, I thought for sure like Gavita would be like, fuck that. But I didn't work for him, so it didn't matter. <laughs> On that note, I've seen that you're going to possibly do some kind of educational stuff down the future or down the line. Is that something that you will be doing, like a class or something of that nature? Yes, that's kind of, that's one of my big goals. And one of my reasons from relocating from Maine to come over here. In Maine, I could have focused on production and brand and pumping out product, product, product. I have people ask me all the time, we you see your product everywhere? No, you're not. Like, I can't make hash for everybody. I don't have the physical fucking ability to stand behind a washing machine seven days a week. Right. So, like, no, you're not. <laughs> but what I can do is take the time that I need to be able to share a lot of this education. I would like my focus not necessarily to be these large commercial grows, which a lot of people are reaching out, wanting consultations for these larger commercial operations or whatnot. 
I hate to say it as much as it's very flattering and probably very financially beneficial. It's not, it doesn't fill that little portion that is in my soul that that I'm looking for, you know. Teaching people that, let's say you've got your four plants that you're outside. Okay, well, now I want to make it into hash, you know. Or let's say you're a smaller medical grow and you're like, I only got like 20 lights, but like, want to make this hash like that's what I would like to kind of cater to is okay now you have your own weed here's what you can do with it one of the things that I definitely plan on doing which I thought would be fun is kind of to go along like with the dough tips so I want to do almost like blooper videos that aren't really bloopers but like hey guess what I just made hash and this happened like my patty is fucking melted and stuck to my bag. What the hell do I do? How do I save this? What's the best route to somehow still get medicine out of this without sacrificing it? Right. So that's kind of what I would like to start working on. It's just educating people. I haven't quite decided exactly how I'm going to do it. I would like to do some in-person classes. But mostly I would probably like to do like a web-based, so that like a lot of people have access to it. Yeah. Maybe different levels of information, like beginners, intermediate, and then, you know, award-winning bullshit. Like, yeah, so. Well, very cool. I'll be working on that. I'm not sure when. But definitely that'll be in the works. Yeah, that's cool. Well, people can be looking out for that. Again, I'm super thankful for your time. Two last pretty straightforward questions. Top three hash makers. Top three hash makers. Oh, shit. What do we call that? I plead the fifth. What's the next question? (laughs) No, really, I can't pick top three. I can't. I I am so blown away, even especially after this competition, especially after just living in Maine for a year, like the insane amount of really talented hash makers. If you would have asked me this five years ago, I might have had an answer for you. Okay. But as of right now, I couldn't even begin. Okay. Fair couldn't enough. even begin. Fair enough. Yeah. Last question. If you could hear someone else on the show, who would that be? Well, I would definitely like you to get Mila on here. I would like to hear Mr. Foxtrax because he's got a hell of a story, you know. Yeah, we were talking outside a little yeah. earlier, so I, yeah. I definitely love to have him on. Yeah, and good story, on. very passionate, you know, like you do things from the heart, like you do it for the right reasons. A lot of people do not, but yeah, no, I would like that. I'm trying to think of who else. I'll just have to message you because I don't want people to be like, well, what about me? Well, yeah. I'm not leaving anybody <laughs> out. I love you all equally. Well, cool. Jennifer, thank you for your time. Of course, if you want to follow her on Instagram, it's at Jendo420. That's G-E-N-N-D-O-E. J. J, sorry. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Two N's. It's been fun. And is there anything else you wanted to say? Yeah, I really appreciate you taking time out of your life to really put the focus on this specific part of our community and industry. We all work very, very hard to accomplish what we have. And it's really, I'm always very curious about people's stories. I want to know, like, why, where, how. Right. You know? Yeah, I'm super curious myself. Yeah. So, you know, I, yeah. I appreciate that. So thank you for shedding light on that and, you know, giving people that platform to where we can get on and share our stories. Like This is the most in-depth interview I've ever done because normally I'm like, I don't want to do an interview. Right. 
you know, when it's presented in such a way that I feel like it's actually like beneficial or can be inspiring, you know, and you just as of now, like you have so many people on your lineup that are inspiring people out there that it's just absolutely I'm a pleasure to be here. And I appreciate you thinking about me and adding me to that long list of amazing people that continue to make this part of our world just what it is yeah yeah. because there is nothing like the solventless world period like there's just not it's a different it's a different crowd and it's nice to have a little light shed on that no i agree and you know it's been fun but it's also an honor to hang out with you guys so again i'm super appreciative Shout out to Dabadoo Miami. That was a great event. Yeah, thank you guys. Amazing. Shout out to Mila because she made that all possible. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you guys for listening and we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.